Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. Welcome everybody to TNT episode 10. This is our February edition. We are 10 episodes into the podcast. And Oscar, one thing I wanted to address right away is, you know, we talked previously about the podcast length and how at first we were a little bit shorter. It's, it's, it got progressively a little bit longer over time. Now we're, we've kind of found this happy medium, but we both kind of decided that, you know, the, the episode is as long as the episode is. A lot of people reached out to us. They said they don't mind the length. They listen to it over time. They take it in little bites uh, on their drive or in a workout. But one thing we're doing this episode as a trial is on the episodes that we have a guest, because those are usually the longer episodes, sometimes we can try and incorporate the resident reminder or the journal club article into that interview. Yeah. So I think that works. It helps us get an expert opinion and it will shorten the episode maybe a little bit. Yeah, exactly. I think that works well because a lot of times we're trying to give these resident reminders or journal clubs from our perspective. But if we can get it from our perspective, plus our special guest that usually has way more knowledge than we do, and it shortens the, the interview or it shortens the actual length of the, of the segment itself, I think that's a benefit for everybody. So I think that's a great idea. That's yeah. Good. So we'll give, it, we'll give it a try. Knowing our luck, we'll be so passionate talking about these topics with our guests who will be such experts that we'll end up spending longer talking about it and the episode will get even longer than I, it would I, have been. I feel like that's what we're going to go down for sure. We're going to go down that rabbit hole. At least the listener will probably say I'm getting advice from the guests and not these two bozos all yeah, the time. Yeah, exactly. So without further ado, let's jump right into current events. So for this episode, we actually have a huge current event. And for once, it's coming from Oscars. So Oscar, you want to drop some uh, some news that you have to share with everyone? So it is. It's not like Wendell's news that's always oral surge related. And then he throws in this bombshell, like I passed his exam. I didn't pass his exam, even though he's passed them. <laughs> but then he throws in this bombshell. I had a kid. Like he's got all these awesome things. And I've kind of been... There's been nothing significant that's been going on. Nothing's really changed after graduation. For once, now I'm the one with the big news, and that I just bought a house. Wow. Yeah. So give us some give us some details. What what made you decide to do it now? Because you know, a lot of our listeners would have probably already bought a house, you know, back in the day, obviously, or recently, or are thinking about it in the near future, especially the recent grads. So walk us through your process a little bit. Yeah, and I guess I'll give it through a recent grad point of view because like you said most people that are listening that are established or surgeons probably already have their house right like they've been living it for a while they've bought it but let's say for the, the resident listeners that are listening or the people that are just graduating or going through maybe this idea themselves is at some point you're going to have to make the change so i've been living in the same condo that i was living as a resident i was fortunate enough to have purchased it when i was a resident so it, it was comfortable it was good me and, and my girlfriend have been living there for a long time but it was we were getting to the point where like we've outgrown the space we're both working professionals we wanted to get into the market it did seem like the market was almost pulling away from us, even though we were saving. Like the Toronto market, it's insane. So it was like, now is kind of when we have to go in. We realized that mortgage rates were also really low right now. And I had been at my practice now long enough, even though from day one, they've been amazing. I've been there long enough that I knew this is the place I'd like to stay there long, long term or forever if they would like to have me. So 
So you felt secure professionally, so now you can focus on more personal you things. You got it, exactly. And like people may say, oh, but you're in the middle of a pandemic. That is true, but I professionally felt very secure. And Lexi also does feel very secure in her job, right? So we're like, okay, we're ready to take on this responsibility. And then we started searching. We've been searching for a while, just trying to find something that would work both in our budget, in the area we're looking at, and something that we like. And, and we were finally able to make the move this last month, so it's great. Nice, man. That's huge. Congrats, congrats on that. I'm definitely going to be reaching out to you for advice on that. And maybe, you know, on a future episode, we can talk about some of the details you have to go through. For example, finding a mortgage broker, oh, if you have to get one. You got to get a lawyer, you got to get a realtor you like, like, there's a lot that you don't realize. And honestly, I'm excited, but I am someone that likes to think, take things cautiously. Lexi's through the moon happy. I was like, Oh, well, now we have responsibility. Now we have more bills. So it is a little bit nerve wracking, but very exciting at the same time. Now, if you were to classify your home on a spectrum, I would say one side of the spectrum is, you know, a teardown, maybe we'll call it. Another side would be finished product. You walk in and start living there. Where on the spectrum do you, do you see this home for you? So that's a great question. So let's say 10 is your perfect home, right? And I don't mean your forever perfect home, but a perfect home that you're not doing much work on. And zero is a teardown. We're probably at a six with our home. Like we know we're going to okay. be doing quite a bit of work, but we, it's also very livable and we're very happy with it as well. Okay. Yeah. That's good. That's kind of like where I'd put our friendship. Like it's, there's a lot of work to be done, but it's livable. Yeah. I feel like it's got a lot of commitment, but the potential is really good. (laughs) Exactly. So yeah, that's huge. That's, That's congrats to you. I'm sure the majority of our listeners probably remember, you know, having to look for their first home. They're probably actually jealous of you right now. And, and well, no. it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. They're, they're jealous of you for the interest rate. Yeah, but not the but price. They're probably not jealous for the price. It, yeah, exactly. And it's funny yeah. because we do hear this from a lot of the older people I talk to. It's like, yeah, you're so lucky. The interest rate is it's like under two. And I'm like, yeah, but the price is insane compared to what you guys <laughs> yeah. paid. Like, it doesn't yeah. make sense. It's it's easy to pay 8% mortgage when the house costs like $100,000. Exactly, right? I'll buy six <laughs> of them. Like, it doesn't make any yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. From my update, I mean, from a current event point of view, my child is now four months old, which is crazy to think. I mean, you mentioned how I said I had a kid and, and you know, we were, we were talking about that on the podcast. And now he's already, you know, four months old. By the time this episode comes out, he'll probably be five That's months crazy. old. crazy. My wife and child were fortunately able to come visit for a month here in Charlotte. So it was funny. It was kind of my first foray into really being a parent, being a parent. Yeah, yeah. because it's different talking, you know, to my wife on the phone and trying to give advice or talk about the day and figure things out. But, you know, most of it ends in a okay, he's being fussy or he's crying or he needs something. I'll talk to you later. And you, You just hit like end call and your parenting ends and you go back to a bachelor lifestyle. You were being you were pulling a matrix before. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going in and coming out whenever yeah, I wanted. Yeah. Whereas now they're here full time. So, you you know, I, I understood what was going on before, but you see it firsthand. Okay, like, you know, trying to get them to sleep, trying to get them to, to feed and all that kind of stuff. But it, it was awesome. It was an awesome month. They just had uh, head back to Canada for a little bit. And then they're hoping to move here permanently until the end of the fellowship. Oh, so that's, that's going to be that's fun. That's exciting. That's really, really exciting. And honestly, it gives it gives Bianca that support too, right? Like, it's nice for you guys to be there together as a family. So that's really exciting. Definitely. You could tell it's funny. When he first arrived, he had no idea who I was. Yeah. He was he was very shy for me to hold him. Like he was very apprehensive of me. And by the end, it was it was perfect. Like I was holding him, we were playing together, he was smiling at me, giggling. It was awesome. Again, so, kind of like our friendship. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> kind of like our friendship. Yeah, except I can still just, you know, hang up the phone on you. I don't have to deal with you all the time, luckily. Exactly. So 
Another update, finally, I mean, I feel like every episode we're giving some kind of RCDC update, and it's always just an annoying update to give, but, you know, it is an important yep. update to give. Finally, we have some good news. We can kind of put this to bed, at least for now, knock on wood. They sent out an email. The RCDC is happening. For oral surgery, it's happening end of May. They gave kind of a three-day window. I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work. The good news is it's fully virtual. They've confirmed that, oh, which is great. That is good. Exactly. It's great for someone like me because I can't travel back no. to Canada uh, to do a quarantine or a test and then write the exam. I mean, I did it once for the birth of Lennox and the NDSC exam, but there's no way I'd be able no. to do it again at this point. So that's great. You can do it virtually. They also confirmed it's only an oral exam. There's no written component, which I think makes total yeah. sense. We did the written yeah. component for the NDSC. You passed that already. This is an, yeah, this is an oral exam. I think it makes more sense, especially from an RCDC level. So that's good. So annoying to have to study all over again for yet another board exam but i can't complain i'd rather just get this out of the way i'm glad they're kind of organizing gave the dates in advance so at least we can prepare i definitely don't envy you that you've had this kind of like stepwise progression of exams like i definitely preferred my way where it's like you went one day and you wrote your oral i mean you wrote your written and the next day you took your oral and you were done but in the end like you said at least you now have an end date right like you know the end of may beginning of june you are done your last realistic exam and have they given you a breakdown on how it's going to be, like the oral part? Uh, I think they have on the website. I haven't checked it out yet, to be honest. But I think on the website, they, they do list kind of a breakdown nice. and study resources and okay. things like that. So I will definitely check that out. The NDSC exam is going to be a month later. So unfortunately, I mean, it would have been nice if they were kind yes. of back-to-backs for the current residents, the chief residents. They did stagger them by a month. Not the end of the world. It's only a month. So you're probably sick of studying, but at the same time... At least it's just a month away rather than, you know, a year and studying all this time. But I agree. Not, not completely ideal. I agree, but I would say, yeah, I agree more with your second point. I think that's a bit of an oversight. Like, they could have got together as the two governing bodies and just said, okay, let's do it even like a couple of days apart if they wanted to really space them. I mean, they have such a great history of getting together and working out things peacefully. <laughs> <laughs> the next thing I wanted to quickly ask you about, this is like totally random and irrelevant, but I just had to ask you and bring this up for our listeners because I think they would find it funny too. Have you ever heard of a sleeping implant? No. So I was reading, you know, I was doing this fibula implant case a few weeks ago, and I was reading up on placing implants in the fibula, obviously at McGill. Oh, sorry to cut you off. I have heard of it, but I want to see if it's in the same context. I'll see what you're going to tell me. Okay. Okay. So um, at McGill, you know, we did a lot of fibula free flaps, so we placed implants. I've done that before. But, you know, I was reading on it, brushing up before, before the case, and I was reading this article, and it was talking about success rates of implants and fibulas. And they mentioned, you know, 12 of whatever, hundreds of implants were uh, left as sleeping implants. And I was like, what's a sleeping implant? And I looked into it. And basically what they're saying is, you know, they place implants in the fibula, they bury them, they come back and uncover them later on. And sometimes the prosthodontist would determine that one of the implants wasn't usable for the restoration or the prosthesis. So they wouldn't, I guess they would leave it buried and they wouldn't use it. Uh, They obviously wouldn't remove it because like, what's the point of that? And they would just leave it there. And they call that a sleeping implant. But I feel like another way of talking about it is an unnecessary implant, yeah. a surgical planning failure, yeah. a waste of resources and money. Like, what is this? I, I love the term sleeping implant. It sounds it's nicer. A nice way of, it sound, it's a nice way of putting it. So, you know, prior practice, person comes in, they need you know, a molar restored, put the implant in, process is terrible. Say, Don't worry, this is just a sleeping implant. Yeah. And so, and so I hadn't heard it in the context of the fibula article, but I had heard it in that kind of context. It's like a patient went, let's say, not speaking poorly of any other place, but like went internationally to get an implant done. 
came back to Canada and tried to get restored. And the restorative dentist said, or restorative parentodontist couldn't say, we can't restore this. So they would come to us. And yeah, and at that point, we'd call them sleepers, where you're actually not going to take it out because you're going to cause more damage. You're just going to put an implant either on the side of it or in front of it or behind it and just leave that implant buried and sleeping. So that's how I <laughs> that's how I'd heard of it. It's a nice way of saying your implant can't be used. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was ridiculous. So, okay, I'm glad you've heard of it too. That's pretty funny. The next thing we want to talk about is a couple of updates on from the CRAMS. That's the Resident Association of the CAOMS. First up, we have a nice announcement. You know, Oscar and I, I like to think that we on the podcast, we carry some clout, especially now that we're 10 episodes in. We have a loyal listener base. People are chiming in. They're giving us feedback. You know, people are starting to think, okay, maybe their opinion makes sense. I feel like we do have some influence. I mean, might be mild, might be severe, who knows? But I just found it awesome that you know, we talked about the CRMS. We talked about how we should have mentioned it before. We mentioned how we wanted a president from certain universities, yep. especially, you know, Laval. We've never had Laval. Yep. And guess what? We're pleased to announce that Emily Archambault from Université Laval is the new president-elect. And she'll be taking over on July 1st. That's so that was exciting. terrific news, I thought. That's awesomely, that's very exciting. It's spreading the wealth around the Canadian program. So I think that's great. Yeah, I think it's great. I think, you know, as we said last time, if it cycles around Canada, that's the best because you get new perspective, mm -hmm. new ideas from the different programs. So really, really happy that she'll be taking over. So congrats to her. And the second CRAMS thing is I wanted to give a plug for a talk. So Alero Aboyo, the current president, she came on and gave an audio cameo back in the day, I think maybe September, October episode. Mm -hmm. And she said one of the initiatives she wanted to do this year was to have kind of a webinar only for residents and talk about things that you wish you learned in residency. So she's assembled this talk on February 27th. So all the residents listening, I'm sure you've already heard about it and hopefully you've registered. But uh, I was really, really happy and honored. She asked me to be one of the four panelists. So they have someone talking about fellowship in the UK. They have myself representing fellowship in the US. Aren't they tired they of that have, already? Well, that, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I was like, you know, the residents listening, they, they pretty much heard everything about the fellowship. That's pretty funny. And then they have uh, someone speaking about private practice as an associate, and then someone speaking as private practice as a new owner. That's huge. So that's a it, great it's panel. Huge. So it's a great panel. It's like kind of all your different options after residency, which is awesome. I'm actually really interested in, to hear from and learn from the other panelists. So I'm really excited to just even attend as a listener, let alone give my little part. So uh, huge shout out to Alero for organizing that, and hopefully we have a, a good attendance on February 27th. So hopefully the residents all tune in for that. I'll just ask her where my invitation was, if it's in the mail still or if it's coming later. <laughs> uh, yours is a sleeping invitation. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have some feedback. We had uh, a bunch of fan mail from our last episode, which was awesome. We always love that. The first one is from Tony Shahadi from McGill. And he wanted to talk about two things that we discussed in the podcast. The first nice. is something that you mentioned, which is how to schedule yourself when you're first in private practice, how to, how to figure out how long you need for procedures, how to optimize your flow. So what he has done recently is he has adjusted his schedule. And keep in mind, he's owned a private practice for a long time, yeah. working for a long time. So he's still actively trying to optimize his workflow and improve efficiency, which is something you have to do. You can't stay stagnant. You have and to keep innovating. I think, I think that speaks volumes of Tony himself, right? That he's not just staying there and, and trying to be like, oh, I figured everything out that he's still trying to improve. I think that's very impressive at the stage in his career, right? Like he's been established for a long time now. Exactly. And that's what you have to do. You can't be left behind to keep innovating. 
So hopefully our, our other listeners are inspired by this. But basically what he did is he had his office manager time all aspects of their procedure flow. So including, you know, patient being seated, cutting time, you know, all the different aspects with a stopwatch. Then they amalgamated that data, they got together, they evaluated it, and they said, how can we optimize our workflow and maintain a favorable patient experience? So what I like about this is a lot of people will think, oh, I already, you know, we already are as efficient as we can be, or we already get people enough so quickly. How could it be any faster? But just by doing this exercise, first of all, you might confirm you are working mm -hmm. at optimal efficiency, which is great for the team yep. to know, and everyone feels great about that. You also might find out some little things that you can improve, or you might find a massive thing that you just didn't realize. And I think one example would be a lot of times we get tunnel vision as a surgeon. We think when we enter the room, we want, you know, for example, topical to be on, patient seated back, you know, sunglasses, whatever on, all the equipment's laid out, all the paperwork's there, x-rays are mounted or on the monitor. But we kind of don't watch the patient in like the six steps that led up to that. Yep. So if you don't have this meeting and this debrief, you might not realize what's going on before or how to improve those stages. And it's and it's not even necessarily sometimes efficiency. It can also be we have to realize we're in the service industry. It's the experience that the patient comes in, because especially if you're going to be a practice owner in the future, you want to make sure that your patients are comfortable. And yeah, you may be the best oral surgeon and the most charismatic and your patients love you. But if they hated the first 10 minutes from when they walked in the mm. door to when they saw you, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. Or after they left, after you were yeah, done. Maybe, exactly. maybe the exit experience or yeah. the follow-up experience or anything like that. Exactly. Definitely agree. So that was the first thing he mentioned. So that was really cool. The second thing is he wanted to uh, talk about your uh, master's thesis on, you know, in increasing public uh, visibility of the practice. And he said, that's actually been one of the main reasons, you know, this vision of increasing awareness with the public that the CAOMS and Tony Shahadi started the uh, Communications and Marketing Committee. Yeah. They're really dedicated to increasing awareness with the public and also with the profession. He said they're, they're currently in the process of continuously critically evaluating what we do on this front as an association. We're weighing the benefits of what we hope to be a high-quality social media marketing content. And we're also contemplating ways to get the most impact from our marketing dollars because, you know, there is a budget. We don't have an unlimited budget here. They want to attract more members to the COMS and grow the awareness of our specialty. But the main thing he wanted to say is that our membership does have a voice and a shared voice across the country. So, And I think uh, he gets he, credit he for that, like for, for making that initiative, because he really has pushed, like trying to get us out there more, because really that's the only way people are going to know us. Exactly. And I was trying to think, well, is our podcast an initiative in public awareness? And the thing is, it's not, because our listener Audience. base is... Yeah. Our audiences, oral surgeons and residents that are, they already know this. They're, they're, yeah. they're in our bubble. Yeah. We're not reaching out outside the bubble and we're not that type of podcast. There are a lot of other podcasts that try and, you know, talk to general dentists or, or different other specialties and things like that. And although we would like to incorporate that, our main audience is the CAOMS and the residents, the CRAOMS. Yeah. So great to hear from Tony. Thanks for that feedback and always interesting to hear another person's experience and, and what they're currently doing in their practice, which is always, always great to hear. Next up, we have another fan mail, and this is from Nasser Al-Shirani, someone I'm very familiar with. He was a co-resident of mine at McGill, but he oh, mentioned nice. in the email that, you know, Oscar, you don't know me personally. I'm an OMFS resident at McGill. He says, I'm doing my off-service now, and it's been busy the past few months, but now during his first weekend off in a while, he's been binge listening to the podcast and catching up, and he said it was a lot of fun. He, and, he's, and he actually said, you know, I got to say, it's getting better, which... I thought that was a little bit of a backhanded compliment because, you know, we're getting better. 
But doesn't that mean does that mean we were bad before? Like, what's he saying here? But you know what? He's getting better as a resident too. <laughs> Things improve. Things improve. Well, I hope so. I hope so. You know, as Dr. Alakim would say, not not directly to him, more to other uh, junior residents at the time. He said, "You know, you, the good news is you can only go up. You can only improve." Yeah. And that's how we got to take it too. News. Just take the positive out of that <laughs> comment. Yeah, we can only improve. Yeah. So thanks for that, Nasser. But his main reason for mailing in is he had a question for you, Oscar. He said he'd like to hear your thoughts on communicating with other specialties, for example, orthodontists or prosthodontists for arranging your cases and such. This is something that we don't learn a lot during residency, and I feel that it's a very important aspect of our future practice. Are there any tricks to make sure you can expand your referral base? And maybe if you guys think it's a good idea, you can bring a prosthodontist or orthodontist guest on for a short interview. Definitely a good idea and something we would definitely plan for a future episode. But first up, Oscar, how do you deal with your referrals and specialists that you have to deal with? So I think... For you in the coming months and for Nasser, whenever he does graduate, you're going to realize that there is a lot of respect in the community with each other, with all the specialists. Like everyone's pretty cordial with each other. Obviously, in every community, there's some people that are, that are harder to work with than others. But overall, it's pretty easy to work with the other specialists. So it's great. And they're really open to communication. I'm going to speak about my practice personally, because that's all I have the experience in is. And it's pretty streamlined, because as soon as I'm done with a patient... I will type in or dictate my note, and then it gets there. We have a cor- person who's in charge of correspondence who just sends that out for us. So my letter is out at the end of my day. Like, there's no hesitation. There's no wait. If there's, I think this is a little bit of a trickier case or something that needs to be elaborated more, I will pick up the phone and talk to the orthodontist or prosthodontist. And then again, you'll realize that when you call them and you say who you are on the phone, they are very quick to pass you to the doctor that you want to speak to. Like, I very rarely have found we're like, oh, they don't have time to talk to us or they'll call you back in, in longer than a day. So it's pretty easy in that sense. So the actual communication part, I think, has been, has been very good after graduating. To answer your second question about expanding your referral base, that's been a little bit more challenging to do in the sense that we're in a pandemic here in, 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 well, in the whole world, but really in Ontario, we're in a pandemic. You can't really go out and meet people right now. You can't go out for dinners. You can't go talk to people or show up at their office and be like, hey, I just want to introduce myself because I am part of a big practice, right? There's nine other surgeons. Sometimes you can get lost in the mix. And so I think that's something that will be my goal next year when, let's say, the world maybe goes back to normal a little bit more, is to get out there and meet more people on my own personally. I've been more introduced through the practice itself. So I can't really speak on that right now. Okay. Yeah, that's something we can maybe figure out a little bit later when we're able to go out yeah. and meet people and network, because that is, as you said, a huge part of it. You got to go shake hands. You got to meet people that want to put a face to a name, maybe drop off some referral pads, exactly. things like that. During my fellowship right now, it's actually very, you know, January and February is always like the slower months mm-hmm. of the year. Everyone kind of knows that, especially January was really slow, but I got to give a shout out to Peter Franco, who's one of the staff uh, uh, here, because he's kind of taking me under his wing as far as teaching more of the private practice procedure That's side. That's great. So he's kind of told me, this is how you deal with an orthodontist. This is how you deal with uh, a prosthodontist, a GP. And then, you know, this is how you take out wisdom teeth efficiently with the protocol. This is how you place implants. This is how you do guided surgery. You know, things like you learned in residency, obviously. But you want to take that next step to, to being efficient, being fast. And what's nice is because he's there, he can manage the anesthetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the sedation, whereas I can just remove the wisdom teeth. So it's eliminating half of the learning yeah. curve because I don't have to even think about keeping the patient sedated or safe or monitoring them. All I focus on is becoming more efficient at the surgery itself. And that's the ideal. 
and that's the ideal. And then I already, I already feel like I'm getting faster and I, I know the protocol and I'm learning and things like that. And then eventually you have to take the next step of, hey, now you got to manage the sedation as well, which a lot of times is the hardest part of these procedures. Oh, yeah. Keeping the patient sedated and safe rather than, I mean, the actual taking out of the teeth, we know how to do with our eyes closed at this point. Yeah, 100%. So thanks to Nasser for that fan mail and definitely something that we want to touch on going in the future when it comes to dealing with referrals and, and dealing with an orthodontist or a prosthodontist or something like that. Obviously, I'm sure NASA is going to check out the CRAOMS talk that we talked about before because maybe that's something that either the private practice associate or the private practice owner is going to speak about, especially the owner, considering, you know, you really have to build your business based you on referrals. You have to before you do it, yep. I'm also pretty excited, you know, as we round off towards July when the, I mean, the end of June is when the fellowship ends. I'm currently trying to figure out, you know, what my next steps are, are going to be. Obviously, I don't I want, want to put you on the Toronto. spot. Well, yeah, no, I, I haven't figured out anything yet, like concrete. So I'm still working on it, but it's definitely something that I want to update the listeners on eventually. And that's going to be an exciting process to talk about what I had to go through and what, what are the steps involved. Currently, I'm still trying to finalize things. So before, you know, before the ink is dry on the paper, as they say, we'll keep that between us for now. But definitely some exciting things coming up in the future. No, that, and, that, and that'll be honestly, it'll be very informative to the residents because I know when I went through it, it's crazy how much you don't know and it's crazy how much you learn. And then once you're past it, you're like, oh, I wish I knew that, or I wish I maybe enjoyed it more. So it, it's a big deal that that little home stretch where you're figuring out where you're going to be. It's very stressful, but it's not stressful in the way that I think most people are going to think of. So it's going to be interesting to talk about. And there's definitely a lot that you really don't know anything about. No. You're really just kind of trying to wing your way through it and rely on, you know, I talked to you, I talked to some other people, but I think during the main process that you and I were talking almost every other day, just yeah. trying to figure out you know, what are options, what's going on and, and what did you go through and what do you think and things like that. And, and it was back and forth because when I was going through the year before you, I talked to you a lot about things. I'd be like, hey, if you were my spot. So it was, it was nice to come full circle and hear your thoughts when you were coming through. Yeah, exactly. So exciting stuff. We'll get into that in a, in a future episode for sure. So something to look forward to. Without further ado, though, it's time to get to the main course of this episode, one of the guests that we absolutely wanted to bring on is Dr. John Nail. So the reason why we wanted to bring him on is he's one of the staff here in Charlotte uh, at the CCOFS Fellowship. One thing that we've always talked about a lot is the jaw surgery side of the fellowship. And we've also talked about, you know, taking that next leap and becoming a staff with the resident, having to do traumas, having to do infections, no supervision. You are the supervision. Those have been two just unreal aspects of this fellowship. But other things that go on is, you know, you do a little bit of cleft with Dr. Capitan. You do some TMJ surgery with Dr. Nail and Dr. Cook. And those are pretty much the two main surgeons that do TMJ surgery here with uh, Dr. Eric Ryder does all the conservative management nice. and orofacial pain and things like that. So while I'm in Charlotte and have access to these great minds, I wanted to bring them on if they were available to just talk about TMJ surgery. So First up, we have John Nail, a great interview. I mean, I think the listeners are going to be able to tell that he's someone that I constantly joke around with. We rip on each other. He's extremely competitive. He's probably even more competitive than I am. And Oscar, you and I are both extremely competitive. So you're telling me he bullies you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. So sounds, he's sounds like a beauty to me. It's pretty funny because he's constantly ripping on me. Anytime I come up with a joke against him or or a funny scenario where I try and kind of put myself ahead of him, yeah. he like instantly has a response that just destroys me and leaves me speechless. I just sit there and he laughs and I laugh and I'm just like, well done. La like, love him already. Love him already. 
Exactly. So uh, without further ado, here's our interview with John Nell on TMJ surgery. It's specifically, we wanted to get into arthroscopy, arthrocentesis. One thing we left out is total joint replacement. We did this for two reasons. One, we have some other exciting guests that are going to be able to speak about that. And also, more importantly, although, you know, John does a ton of uh, joint replacements, it just been would have been way too long yeah. of an interview if we wanted to cover all of TMJ surgery in one talk. Yeah, no, that would have been way, that would have been a three-month episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's jump right into our interview with John Nail. All right, welcome to the studio, Dr. John Nail. How are you doing? Hey, what's up, Wendell? Thanks for having me. You know, this is actually nice because for the first time for a guest, we're able to do this in-person kind of a live studio experience, which is not something that Oscar and I are used to doing. Have you done it in the past? Uh, we usually do it over Zoom or like a phone call or something oh. like that. We haven't been able, we don't have the budget to fly everyone out at this point, maybe in the future when we get a sponsor or something like that. I honestly wish hint? our view, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wish our viewers could see how cute you guys look right now. Yeah. Do you like his... Uh... CCOFS sweater. I'm wearing the yeah. swag. I got the swag on with the logo exactly. and stuff like and with that. Your atta- with your attached mics, it looks great. I need to take a picture for our viewers. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, a lot of our listeners know you. We've talked about you, especially leading up to this interview. We like to do introductions a little bit different on this podcast. You know, when you go to lecture, review courses, and people talk about, oh, where'd they go to undergrad? Where'd they go to school? And they start listing all these things, and you kind of zone out. You, know, you don't know what they're talking about. We like to really distill it down to what really matters. So. You know, this is John Nail. He works as a partner at CCOFS in Charlotte. He does a ton of TMJ surgery and other surgeries too, but really known for your TMJ work. You lecture at a bunch of courses, including Denver. I would say you're an expert surgeon, beginner chess player, is how I would describe you. Oh, I would respectfully right. disagree. <laughs> <laughs> so we the first thing we gotta do before we get to this interview is we gotta close the full circle because on one episode we had Oscar under the recommendation section of the podcast. He recommended to me Queen's Gambit. I watched it. I loved it. I then recommended it to you at work. You watched it. You loved it. So I have to tell you about how I got to watch it, too, because my wife, she likes to watch the Kardashians. She likes to watch, you know, Below Deck, the the, the trashy shows. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and so if you just kind of look at the title picture of Queen's Gambit, you know, that's a major thumbs down for her. She's not interested at all. Yeah, she sees a chessboard yeah, yeah. and like a sophisticated, you know, American in like the 80s. Listen. Yeah, she's like, next, next. <laughs> that's right. So, you know, it's like on the weekends before everyone's kind of up at 630 in the morning, I'm watching a quick episode or, <laughs> or she's taking uh, my kids to golf practice. So I'm, I'm, I'm at home watching it. So I, I had to actually really work. Yeah, at watching it. You had to sneak to watch the show. That's amazing. I hate to say sneak, but it's kind of true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But what's funny is you ended up watching it. You loved it. It kind of reignited your passion for chess, my passion for chess. The next episode I told Oscar that I watched and I loved it. And he told me there's been this massive boom in people buying chess boards. And I said, well, you know, that's no surprise because John and I have been buying chess boards and playing at work all the time. And we pretty much play. We always have a game going on pretty much all the time. Wendell and I have become super competitive when it comes to chess, I would say when we first started playing, we were kind of even. And then he would sneak away and watch videos on YouTube on strategy. <laughs> and then he just waxed me for yeah. about a month. I, uh, I'd say about and, three months. And, I, did, I was destroying Let's not you. get ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> but then finally, I caught up. And so we were actually, I'd say, pretty neck and neck. 
Honestly, that's the best way to have it, though. You're enjoying the games that way. So we're, we're at the phase now where we are pretty much even to the point where we draw a lot of our games or they mm-hmm. really drag on. Just like Grandmasters. <laughs> yeah, just like Grandmasters. <laughs> so we've actually, I've transitioned to now, I'm studying up again, I told John yesterday, because I'd like to create a little bit of a gap between us. But enough about chess. Let's get into the actual interview we've been planning with you. So the first question we want to ask you is, how many years have you been practicing oral surgery? And what exactly started your interest in TMJ surgery? So I've been here in Charlotte now for 12 years. And, um, you know, what I trained at a very heavy TMJ program at the University of Florida. My chairman was Frank Dolick, who basically invented arthrocentesis. So he realized that um, before MRIs, they used to get arthrograms to evaluate disc derangements. And what he realized is that when the patients would come back from the radiology department, they, they, feel were, better. they were fixed. Okay. <laughs> and that was the birth of um, arthrocentesis. But the reality is when I came to town, just like every young surgeon who graduates, all you want to do is getting, get into the operating room. And pretty quickly, I realized that the fastest way into the operating room was to do TMJ surgery because no one else wants to do it. And I can tell you, every day on my desk, I probably get 10 new TMJ referrals that I have to you know, sift through to see wow. if there's someone that I need to see. So, you know, my advice is someone just graduating who has some interest. If you want to be busy, you just go around and tell people that you're a TMJ surgeon and within a year, you'll have more patients than you know what to do with. Yeah, that's actually great advice. And I got a question for that, like the, the lead into that. You were saying that you get, let's say 10 referrals a day and you're sifting through them. Do you have a screening process that you're going before you see these patients or like you're before you accept them as patients or are you accepting all of them as consults? So this was something that I've learned over the last 12 years, you know, if, if you're an orthognathic surgeon, every referral you get, you know that they need jaw surgery. Yeah. But if you get a TMJ referral, you don't know. And my first five years in practice, maybe 20, 20% were a surgical candidate. Yeah. And so when you become busy, spending an hour with a patient that doesn't turn into a surgery it's, it's sort of expensive time. And yeah. uh, so what I've done is created a screening process. We have we're, we have the luxury of having some conservative management TMJ specialists in our practice. Oh, that's huge. So yeah. every TMJ referral ends up on my desk and I use the questionnaire. You know, we if, if they're referred to us, we mail them a questionnaire. The patient has to fill it out. And I use that to help me try and pre-screen who might be more likely to need surgery. So things that I focus on is if their chief complaint is, I can't open my mouth. Okay, that's going to end up on my schedule. Yeah. If they draw just a little circle around the, the joint, mm-hmm. um, but nowhere else, that's going to be on my, you know, if it's, I have painless clicking, uh, you know, um, I'm going to let the conservative manager, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and so... Um, I have found that to be a very worthwhile exercise because now when I have um, a whole day of TMJ consults, maybe 60, 70% are actual 
Yeah, see that that's really important to have that streamlined. That's that's really good information there. Because I think one of the biggest holdups of people doing any form of TMJ management is seeing endless amounts of conservative management patients, myofascial pain patients, you know, chronic pain disorder patients, and not really getting to do surgery. So the payoff is so low, as you said. So if you can optimize it to increasing that conversion rate, it's going to let you do more surgery and kind of focus you on the actual procedures you need to do. So on average, how many TMJ surgeries? would you say you perform a year? Probably 50 to 60. And what I consider surgery would be either a surgical arthroscopy, an open arthroplasty, or total joint replacement. Yeah, so you're talking about major TMJ surgery. That's right. Um, You know, if you wanted to include an arthrocentesis, I might do two to five a month in addition to that. I know we're probably skipping topics here, but I, I noticed that on episode nine, uh, you guys had a nice discussion on <laughs> arthrocentesis. Yes, we did. Yeah. And um, I just wanted to give your listeners a little pearl of when I decide who needs arthrocentesis and who would respond better with an arthroscopy. One of the things that you mentioned in that episode, Wendell, was that an indication is for that you know, acute closed lock. And, you know, you used, you define that as an acute disc displacement. But I also wanted to point out that you can have something called an anchored disc, mm-hmm. which is where you get almost a negative pressure above the disc and it adheres to uh, the fossa. So the pain then comes when they try to open, the disc doesn't move because it's stuck to the temporal bone and the discal condylar ligaments are getting stretched. So. I use an arthrocentesis for those acute closed locks, but if they've been locked for somewhere around that three to four month mark, Mm -hmm. I find that the predictability of an arthrocentesis goes way down. It doesn't necessarily mean I won't try it, but I'm not going to do surgery on someone if it's only been a couple months that they've been locked. Mm -hmm. But if it's been six months, you know, the success rate of an arthrocentesis probably is less than 25%. And my rationale for that is it's probably scarred into that, the disc is scarred into that abnormal position. So Mm -hmm. um, it's going to need a little bit more manipulation to um, reposition. To get it freed up there. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, speaking on like the the, the amount of procedures they were doing a year, with regards to arthroscopic procedures, what do you perform on a regular basis? And we'll give you kind of a, a preface where, you know, Oscar went to the University of Toronto for his residency. They were a pretty heavy TMJ program. They're kind of known for that in Canada. Did a lot of arthroscopy, a lot of joint replacements. At McGill, where I trained, we did joint replacements. We did, you know, a little bit of open arthroplasty, not a lot. A lot of arthrocentesis, but zero arthroscopy. And it's pretty common in Canada that people do not have a good arthroscopic experience. So no. what's kind of run of the mill for you? Right. So on a typical arthroscopy, you know, I use a three millimeter diameter camera and most of the literature would describe a 30 degree lens but i i was trained with the zero degree lens so it requires a little bit more dare i say skill uh, <laughs> to, to see the lateral gutter you know you can essentially do uh, the same thing you know i think my biggest gripe with arthroscopy literature is they never define what is included in surgical arthroscopy. 
because a lot of the literature includes just lysis of adhesions. So mm -hmm. that means if you put a blunt probe in and you kind of stretch the capsule and, you know, lice one adhesion, yeah. I guess by definition, that's surgical arthroscopy. But when I do mine, you know, obviously I'm going to do a full exam and look at all the cardinal zones. But the first thing I used to do was to do a capsular stretch to try and mobilize the disc. But what I found is that visibility would be terrible because you're essentially tearing where the disc has been adhesed to. Mm -hmm. And so I changed my approach and I essentially do a capsulotomy with an RF knife, a radio frequency knife. Mm -hmm. And once you do that, it's a pretty clean split thickness separation of the disc from the lateral, medial, anterior, and posterior ligaments. And then I'll run the blunt probe to mobilize the disc. Traditionally, that's probably all you need to do for someone who maybe is young, whose disc is not really deformed, because the, the whole premise of the surgery is to create mobility of the disc. It's not terribly important to actually reduce it. However, not everybody has a normal appearing disc. And so when you think about someone with a disc derangement, if they've progressed from painless clicking to painful clicking to close lock, they probably have some thickness of the posterior band of their disc. And so by definition, it's deformed. And so if you mobilize it, they're probably still going to click just because it's twice the thickness that it yeah. used to be. So in those cases, you have a couple options. Uh, you might perform an eminence reduction. Um, I'll take a guarded round burr and reduce the eminence just to create more space uh, within the superior joint space. Personally, that's kind of fallen out of my favor. And I've, I've mostly because I learned the technique to plicate the disc through the, the scope. I'll insert an 18 gauge spinal needle into the joint and pass a PDS suture through the retrodiscal tissue in sort of a horizontal fashion and then plicate the disc. And that has really minimized the amount of post-operative clicking that I've had. Wow. I think the key too is to sort of set patient expectations afterwards. You can't promise them that they're going to be perfect right afterwards. You know, just like a basketball player who has sprained their ankle you know, usually they can finish the game that night, but the next day when you wake up, your foot's swollen, you can't, it, it hurts. And that can take two weeks before you regain mobility. So I sort of tell everyone, you don't expect anything for two weeks because mm -hmm. the surgery is just going to create this edema and stiffness. But usually by a month, I would say certainly more patients than not are opening back at a normal, normal range. Yeah. Obviously, there's other factors like what does the condyle look like? Do they have osteophytes or, or that sort of thing? I used to do discectomies through the scope and did that pretty regularly for about five or six years. But I found I was losing vertical dimension of the ramus and it was creating a malocclusion. Hmm. And uh, because I didn't have the ability to put a graft or something in there, abdominal fat, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I would take it and kind of push it through the trocars mm. but it yep. would emulsify and it really didn't create any vertical Actual substance yeah in retrospect maybe what i should have done is put imf screws in and kept them in elastics to maintain their bite you know but my technique now is just to do an open arthroplasty and i'm probably not going to go back and try that but if i 
if I were to go back and talk to my old self when I was still doing it, yeah. I, I would use some sort of elastic guidance to hold her bite in place for a few weeks. Well, this kind of gets into the one of the next topics we wanted to mention was we've talked already about kind of our our discussion about arthrocentesis and you know when you would switch maybe from an arthrocentesis to an arthroscopy. My question for you is one thing that Oscar and I mentioned on a previous episode and something we've long debated is we often meet TMJ surgeons that do arthroscopy, but they only do level one. So they just do a diagnosis, maybe a sweep, a lavage. They, they don't have the training to do level two or level three, any operative interventions. And Oscar and I have often argued that if you're just going to do a lavage, you know, while you're looking through the camera, you might as well have just done an arthrocentesis. We don't see the benefit of a level one arthroscopy if you cannot then progress to a level two and level three. Is this something you would agree with or do you think there is benefit from people even doing only a level one arthroscopy? I would say in general, I agree with your statement. There is probably one indication that I could think of is when you put the camera in, if you visualize an adhesion, you can actually take your camera and use it to light the blunt probe. To just right. bluntly, yeah. That's right. So you can actually create a stretch. You can physically manipulate the disc with the tip of the camera. But the reality is when of all the joints that I've looked in, 20% have a identifiable adhesion. So, mm-hmm. you know, usually that disc has just ridden up the anterior capsular wall. And that's the problem. It's not that, you know, most of the time when I see adhesions, it's, um, they've had, they've been manipulated before. And so now, like, again, for you, you have the ability to do not just level one arthroscopy. So kind of this leads us to a next question is, what is your criteria for offering a patient an open arthroplasty instead of an arthroscopy? I feel like most surgeries I can do through a scope, but the things that I struggle with and that I'd be more inclined to do an open is if anything needs to be done in the inferior joint space. So if they have pretty significant osteophyte, you know, just a few months ago, I had a patient with, I think she probably had an undiagnosed medial pole fracture when she was younger and she had a huge piece of heterotopic bone. It almost looked like a cow horn off the medial pole. You know, that's, that's just something that is almost impossible to get to with, yeah. uh, with the scope. Uh, and then we sort of mentioned discectomies. Yeah. You know, to me, it just makes more sense. It's a little bit faster. You can preserve the abdominal. I use abdominal fat graft as my interpositional graft. Yep. So um, um, it's a little bit easier to, to do that through an, an open arthroplasty. So one thing we do each episode, as you know, is we do a little bit of a resident reminder, and that's just meant to speak to really junior residents and senior residents alike and talk to them about a specific topic. And although we've normally done that, just Oscar and myself, what we're doing this episode is we're bringing you in as the guest to talk about, you know, a topic that's very relevant to residents and kind of incorporate it into the episode. Because if we have a guest and we have an expert, why not ask them their opinion as well? Last episode we did on arthrocentesis. On this episode, we want to talk briefly about some surgical techniques. Now, obviously, this is an audio podcast. It's much easier for you to demonstrate with pictures, with diagrams, and both in the operating room as you do with me. But just to kick it off, can you briefly explain your surgical technique 
for an arthrocentesis. Last episode, Oscar and I debated, do you need to draw the line? Do you need to do these dots? Can you just feel for the joint? What do you inject? What do you not inject? What has been your approach and what's your management right now? Sure. So I still mark my location. I don't draw a line on the patient. I simply just hold my ruler along the tragocanthal line and use a marking pen Mm -hmm. at my 10 and 2 point. I got a kick out of your history lesson about the Murakami second access point at 20 and 10. Yeah. The reality is it doesn't matter where you put your second port. Yeah. My advice to everyone is to just make it easy on yourself. Literally put it right next to your your first entry point. Um, In some of your description, I remember a lot of references about trying to triangulate. And I just want to remind everyone that you're supposed to insert in a medial, anterior, and superior direction. Because if you're putting in your anterior port and aiming it posterior, remember the external auditory canal really right there. traverses anteriorly. So if someone has a, a foramen of Hauschka or a defect in the temporal bone, you know, you could easily insert the needle into the, the middle ear. So yeah. uh, again, be, be careful with that. Traditionally, I'll lavage with roughly 100 to 120 cc's of LR or normal saline. I like to do it in 10 cc syringes. That way I, I feel like I can put a lot of hydrostatic pressure in the joint and really, mm-hmm. uh, really distend it. Um, I think as long as you have good outflow, then that's okay. And I'll intermittently obstruct the outflow. So I put some IV tubing on the outflow just so I can collect it in a basin. And I'll intermittently obstruct it to try and distend the joints. I like the IV tubing yeah. use because I hadn't seen that before. And I'm sure Oscar knows every arthrocentesis is like a shower. You're just getting sprayed with liquid <laughs> the entire time when you get that outflow. So I think having the IV tube connected to the outflow track is really nice, not only for the compression you're talking about, but just for having a dedicated area that you can collect you know, the outflow in a basin. That's been quite nice. Actually. So you have IV tubing that then dumps into a kidney basin? That's right. Wow, that is that is pretty slick. That and is it's, smart. It's a, a short length yeah. of IV tubing, maybe yeah. two feet worth. Not, um, But the, the beauty there is I can pinch it off and really generate some hydrostatic pressure um, so that if there are any adhesions within the superior joint space, you're going to reach that yeah. kilopascal threshold of, of pressure. And so then... That's arthrocentesis for you. And so now can you, again, I know we're asking you somewhat repetitive questions, but for us and for the resident listeners, I think it is important is can you briefly explain your surgical technique for arthroscopy? Sure. So I still use the same anatomic landmark for my posterior port. However, in arthroscopy, it's much more important to triangulate. Um, You can ask Wendell about access and, and not being able to triangulate. It makes the surgery exponentially hard he's getting pretty good at making it hard on himself <laughs> so, he, he, he's an expert when it comes to that i was beaming i thought you were about to say yeah. he's getting pretty good at doing the surgeries come a long way so you that, lift him up you lift and him then up. you crush him down yeah and you're like, was, oh, guess not that was the perfect like i was like oh Wendell's gonna get a compliment and then yeah. squished Don't worry, Jeff, it's only every oral surgeon and resident in all of canada listening yeah. so not like my reputation will be shattered by you in this interview yeah, that was yep. perfect yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> um, so normally I will mark 
25 millimeters anterior to the midtragus and 10 millimeters inferior. So it's a little bit further apart than the Murakami uh, initial publication. But even still, I think that's too close together. Inevitably, what happens is when you insert it at 25 and 10, you hit the lateral eminence. And remember, you want to be in the anterior recess, which means you have to walk your way anteriorly. So it's probably closer to 30 and 10, but I still mark 25 and 10 and use a, an 18-gauge needle to sound it. And so when I feel bone, I start walking in an anterior direction until I fall into the superior joint space. And then I kind of make the determination, okay, how much am I angulating anteriorly to get in there and then just make my incision you know, forward of where I inserted the needle? It probably took me six months of trial and error to get fluent at arthroscopy. Um, I, I feel fortunate that I grew up playing video games because that's what I equate it to, you know, the, the hand-eye coordination of looking at a screen. And, but it, it is easy to get turned around when you just get started, but I, I would encourage everyone to keep doing it. The truth is, as long as you get something in the joint and manipulate it, the patients are probably going to get better. So it's hard to make them worse. It's just the more you practice, the better you're going to get at it and be more efficient at it. But once I'm in there, I've sort of already walked through my arthroscopy technique. I'd love to explain how I plicate. Um, I'll, I'll give it a try, but this is one where I might need some pictures. But I'll, I'll take a spinal needle and kind of create a curvilinear bend in it to give it a little subtle uh, curvature. Uh, and I'll insert it into the superior joint space. And once I visualize the tip of the needle in the superior joint space, I insert it through the retrodiscal tissue into the inferior joint space. And because we've created that curvature, as I advance it, it will come back into the superior joint space. So once I see the tip, then I'll pass the suture through the needle and then grab it with some forceps and then pull the needle out and pull the forceps out. And that will essentially have created a horizontal Ooh. mattress. And then it's just a matter of tunneling one end underneath the skin to get to the other incision and then tie it. As it's far funny because you make that sound so simple. But so simple. Who it sounds so, oh, not, okay, just, yeah. Yeah, just, just put it through the secure joint space <laughs> into the inferior. The nice curvature will come back out. It's and like, like all the junior residents are like, oh, okay, yeah, so you pass it through there. And they have no idea how much skill that really does. For, 45 minutes later, ah, the disc will probably settle in the right yeah. spot. Don't well, worry. the reality is you should see my my edited video of it that I give during the uh, LSU or Denver review course. It's actually a video of the second time I ever did it. It took me about 30 minutes, but I edited it to about two minutes. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it looks really good. You um, look like a pro. <laughs> actually, you know what the key to really expediting it was? Was teaching Logan and Rebecca, my surgical scrubs, how to hold the camera. So using three hands yeah. to accomplish it really made it much, much You could just focus easier. on the task at hand. That's right. It took practice, but now I can probably do it in five or 10 minutes. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I again, think, that, that's so impressive. I think for a lot of this TMJ, especially the arthros arthroscopy, it, it just really takes a lot of practice. I mean, 
it's a little disconcerting to know that I grew up also my entire childhood playing video games, but clearly that has not translated according to you into uh, surgical <laughs> skills. But well, you still have six months to go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, as far as open arthroplasties, I've always been a big fan of the endaural approach. I think it leaves a nice aesthetic result. It provides you plenty of access. Now, I will admit all of my open arthroplasties are done with an endaural, but for total joint replacements, I use a preauricular mm-hmm. uh, because a preauricular, excuse me, for a TMJ replacement surgery, the preauricular incision really lets you reflect yeah. your flap anteriorly you know, much more. And you need as much access as you can get to insert that fossa. Yeah. And one of the nice things about this fellowship, you know, it's only Oscar. Everyone knows it's jaw surgery fellowship. You also get experience doing trauma, infections, things like that. But the whole TMJ side is also a big part of the fellowship as well. And maybe something that people don't realize. But one of the things that have been exposed to a lot more here is open arthroplasties. So you mentioned, you know, endoral versus preauricular, things like that. When it comes to doing an open arthroplasty, I mean, many people have, you know, read about the approach, the, the layers, all that kind of stuff. But is there any particular pearl you could give a resident that's doing it for the first time or maybe trying to get better at it? To, to helping them succeed better with their open arthroplasties? Well, I think, Wendell, you can attest to this. After I make the incision, the first thing that I try and do is find temporal fascia. So I actually dissect at the very superior aspect of my incision and really try to do it as bluntly as possible. You know, I just spread hemostats until I can get down to that glistening fascia and then insert a toe-in retractor. You know, I think that creates a nice plane of dissection and you can work your way inferiorly and look for the superficial temporal vein, you know, deciding whether to just move it, ligate it. Um, And then the other little pearl that I have is once you have gotten deep to your temporal fascia, your subperiosteal, you've sort of reflected your flap anteriorly and exposed the arch, I take a number nine and really retract the tissue lateral to the capsule in an inferior direction and just separates very easily. It doesn't require, you know, any heat. It doesn't require, you know, really don't encounter any blood vessels, but it just makes your access so great. And for me, I, when I'm doing joint replacement surgery, I do my condylectomies from below. Mm-hmm. But if you are doing them from above, I think that would give you a lot of access also. But, you know, I, I'm like a hawk when it comes to putting the prosthesis in that I want to make sure that condyle is superior and posterior in the fossa. Yep. So the more access you can have. The better to, view, to the vi- better. To visualize that, the better. And yeah, like, sure. yeah, if you just, again, residents who haven't done this, that stripping technique will just release things probably so nicely. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And in, I know you, you just were referring to arthroplasties, but, you know, I just sort of alluded to it when you're replacing joints, making sure the condyle is seated the first time will make your surgery make you, uh, timely. I mean, yeah. it, 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 much it, better day. Yeah, there's nothing worse than oh. finishing a three-hour surgery only to find they have an open bite postoperatively and you have to redo it. Yeah, for sure. And then along that, so 
a lot of this is tailored because this is the resident reminder section is what advice would you give to residents who are currently training that are new to TMJ surgery? Make sure you have a good mentor. And, um, you know, I, I think someone who's willing to let you operate and look over your shoulder, um, because nothing's better than experience. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think what you said there too is that's also the sign of a true good mentor is that one, they're going to teach you, but they're also going to let you operate because that's how you are going to get better. But that also shows that they're comfortable in their skills that they can back you up as well. That's right. And honestly, when the non-attending or the senior surgeon is not the one operating, I mean, frankly, a few more mistakes or mishaps are going to happen. Mm-hmm. And part of the training is learning how to manage that. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you get into bleeding, I will be there. That's right. So I'm here if you need me, but I want you to kind of figure it out. And yeah. and that is sort of when you go from being a B-level surgeon to an A-level surgeon. Yeah, 100%. Totally agree. And, and that's one of the transformations in the fellowship when it comes to, for example, our trauma cases, you know, I'll be doing it with the resident as the attending. And I tell Oscar all the time, for the first time, I don't have backup. So yeah, we might be doing a simple mandible fracture or maybe something a little more complex, but you're trying to walk a resident through the entire procedure knowing that if they mess up, it's on you and you need to be able to manage that complication. It's very easy to say, okay, I would do the exposure, I'd put a plate, put my screws, I know exactly what am I doing, uh, I can get a great result. But then you have to walk someone else through that process. And you know, it's definitely a transformation that we all have to go through. But I think it's really important, as you said, to have, have a good mentor that's actually going to teach you the surgery, but let you do it give you some room to grow and make some mistakes, but also be able to help you correct your mistakes so you can learn from that. Yeah. That concludes our resident reminder section. I'm sure the residents benefited from that a lot. And it's great to get, you know, your opinion on all those sorts of uh, surgical procedures. You know, we actually have a ton of listeners that are, we like to call them the veterans, the veteran surgeons, you know, I'd say we have three categories of listeners. We have a residence that we've talked to. I'm sorry, all eight of them? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, all eight of them, which will never speak to me again, thanks to you. Um, So we have three categories of listeners. We have our residents. Then we have our new grads. We talk a lot about our new grads because Oscar's a new grad. I'm a new grad. We really feel like they can relate to what we're going through, and they have just gone through it themselves. But then we actually have a healthy dose of listeners that are what we call the veteran surgeons. They've been in practice for maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 years. It's obviously going to be difficult for someone that's been practicing for 30 years to start incorporating their practice, but maybe someone that's five or 10 years out, they really wanted to do this and they just haven't been able to establish it. So you've touched a little bit on, you know, referrals and, and, and trying to weed out the, the percentage of surgical cases, but what advice would you give to relatively new practitioners or maybe five to 10 years out that are trying to establish a TMJ surgery into their practice? What would be your advice? Understand splints. You know, uh, when I went to dental school, they just taught everyone how to make a flat plane appliance with an anterior ramp. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they expected you to make those universally uh, across the board for every patient. And the reality is, you know, that's only one of many different types and styles. Each have their their benefits. And it's, when you talk to young surgeons, dentists, it's voodoo. And I think if you can spend some time understanding when you might use a muscle deprogram or when you might use an anterior positioning device or, you know, I think that is just a little subtlety that will make your life easier. Now, as a surgeon, I don't ever want to make splints, but, you know, um, it it comes with the territory. Um, I am fortunate enough to have someone in my practice who will do that 
for me, but I think it'll help you understand the disease process better. Uh, another advice that I could give you would be to learn how to be selective with your surgery patients. I think, especially for young people, it might be you might be inclined to offer surgery to treat pain. And the the one piece of advice that has always stuck out that was taught to me was you're not treating pain. You know, you're you're treating an anatomical problem. And the assumption is that the pain will improve when the anatomic problem is corrected. Mm. But, you know, I tell patients, you know, pain's something you can't see, you can't touch. So, you know, make sure you have a plan and, and a, a reason why you're operating, you know, just to go in and pull a disc back without really knowing why I don't think is, is, is right. And the other piece of advice, uh, this is going to sound really callous, but I'm, I'm going to speak from a surgeon's point of view, how to learn not to marry a patient. You know, it is, you know, obviously we want to be there for our patients and be a shoulder to lean on. And, you know, I think part of the stigma is that, you know, TMJ patients are always in pain and they're mm -hmm. always in your practice. And, yeah. um, and that might be a deterrent for surgeons to treat patients with those needs. But uh, for me, I see patients for an initial consultation. If I feel like they need an MRI, I'll get an MRI. And that after imaging, that's when we make a surgical plan. Mm -hmm. I see them at one week and then I see them at a month and then I don't make a follow-up appointment. You know, their general dentist is capable of handling any myofascial issues or yeah. splint issues. Trust me, if they need you, they're going to call you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, You know, but I don't feel obligated to make a six-week, a six-month, a one-year follow-up. Like um, you're setting boundaries there. You're like, this is the job I can provide you and it's a surgical intervention. That's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. You know, uh, if you went to an orthopedist for shoulder surgery yeah. and you had a little pain afterwards, they're going to send you to a physical therapist. They're not right? doing and your physio. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. All right, John. So what we like to do with all of our guests at the, you know, when we're coming to the conclusion of an interview is we like to give them an opportunity to give any shout outs. You know, this is kind of like an Oscar speech where if you start to drag on a little bit too long, we might edit or you know, have like the music kind of crescendo in to interrupt you. But are there any particular shout outs you want to give on the podcast? Hold, hold on. I, he means the award show and not my kind of speech because he's the one that keeps talking all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was looking for the uh, hook that they pull you off stage. I don't, I don't see that. Uh, no, I, you know, if I had to shout out one person, it's Frank Dolwick. He was my mentor chairman at University of Florida. Uh, one of the leading TMJ surgeons in the U.S. And, you know, he taught me everything I know. I'll throw Dan Spagnoli's name out there. He taught me how to do surgical arthroscopy when I came to Charlotte. And then my brothers here at CCOFS, you know, I've got nine wonderful partners. The 10 of us are like a fraternity here in Charlotte. And um, I can't think of a better place to work. Now, I know that we're getting to an end, but I also have to mention that I did listen to episode nine on the way into work today, and there was a fantastic discussion on scotch. Oh no, wine. Oh no, and I, I want to know why I wasn't. You didn't save that for when you were interviewing me. Well, 
I, I thought it'd be maybe something we that might come up naturally as you just brought it up. I was hoping you wouldn't bring it up though, because <laughs> the main reason I didn't want to bring this up with you is that my main message to Oscar was, you know, that you love Shirley Temple's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, we've encountered all these people that, you know, they love wine, they love beer, they love scotch. Obviously, we experience that in our lives, but definitely coming to Charlotte, you just talked about the fraternity and your brothers. I mean, you, you know how it is here. People love their their beer. They love their bourbon. You're kind of the, the go-to when it comes to wine, I would say. And it's just something Oscar and I, we're not in that mentality. We're not in that that space yet. Maybe it's something we'll grow into, but... Well, do, you, do you think it's something guaranteed that we're going to grow into that space? You're trying to encourage us into that space? Well, first, of all, first of all, don't throw me under the bus. I'm more in that space than you are. You're, <laughs> yeah. you're nowhere near it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, when I when you were asking that question on episode nine, I started laughing and I was thinking, he's probably about five years away <laughs> from from being a little bit more dependent on wine <laughs> like I am. Yeah. And, and the reason being, your son is... What six months old? Four months now. Right. Yeah. So when he's about five, <laughs> yeah. what's going to happen is you're going to come home from work. Okay. You're going to give him all the attention that he wants, needs, and deserves. Okay. And then at about seven thirty, eight o'clock, you're going to sit down because remember you've already taken out ten sets of wisdom teeth. You've seen ten post ops and ten consults. Yeah. And you're going to start looking in your wine pantry, going. Yeah, I'll have a glass. That sounds delicious. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is really the reason why we get more into our scotches, our bourbons, our wines. It's because you think your life is stressful right now, but you're only halfway there. Yeah. Your child's not even mobile yet. Nope. (laughs) He doesn't have an opinion of himself yet. No. it's coming. And then when you add the pressures of, you know, working in your own office and seeing that 30 patients a day, you're going to want to release. And, uh, and so, but I will admit, I maybe I just had an epiphany one day where I realized I was drinking two glasses of wine pretty much every day and thought, gosh, if I keep this up, I'm going to put on 25 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) And so now uh, I limit myself to just Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Okay. And special occasions. <laughs> Which are Monday, or Tuesday, Wednesday. Day. <laughs> or, or, <yeah. laughs> or if it's a stressful day. Yeah. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I actually have taken it over the limit. You know, I, I'm i kind of a competitive person, an all-in kind of person. Yeah. And, you know, with surgery, I tell everyone at some point in your career, you've pretty much done every surgery you're ever going to do. Okay. Yeah. And so you're not laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, worrying about case the next day. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you start looking for other mental challenges, which is why I've taken up chess with chess, you. Yeah. We play. Well, I got super into wine and I am actually studying to be a sommelier. Yeah. No you way. went a little bit, you, you went a little bit intense into the wine. I no way. I, yep, That's yep, impressive. So, I'm a WSET level three, and I'm ready to sit for my certified sommelier exam. I was supposed wow. to do it in June. For, for the, those of our listeners that don't know what like a WSET level three is and what this expertise means, it means when you're at dinner and the waiter, you order a bottle and the waiter pours that little bit into the glass for you to, for you to taste. And every single person here listening says, oh, yeah, that tastes great. And they have no idea what the hell they're talking about. John's the type of person where he would actually know what it's supposed to taste like and if it actually matches the meal or not. I you would know, hate to be your waiter. 
<laughs> uh, you know, I, I'll tell you, my studies have made me interested in wines that I wouldn't normally drink. You know, I discovered, my wife and I discovered we love Rieslings. I never would have had that before. But when you start reading about the different varieties of wine, it makes you want to go out and buy it and try it. You know, Beaujolais is a great everyday wine that's not too expensive. So yeah, it, it's sort of become a passion of mine now. And now I can't stop until I actually get certified. That is so uh, impressive. That's actually very, very impressive. Yeah, the the hardest part is the blind tasting studying mm-hmm. um, because it's expensive. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Most sommeliers work at restaurants where they get glasses yeah. of wine you know, for free. Distributors are giving it to them. Yeah. Uh, nope, I have to buy my own. So, And then, of course, <laughs> once you open a bottle, you can't can't leave it hanging. Drink it. Yep. And now you've limited it to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so you got to really drink it. Crash courses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, thanks, John. This has been a great interview. It's great learning your opinion on all these things. And, you know, I tell Oscar all the time, we're both hyper-competitive people, Oscar and I, but I think you really fit that mold. It shows in the way you approach, you know, education, teaching, surgery. You know, as you mentioned, we're playing chess these days. Your obsession with wine, it's, just, it's always been fun. Last question I would have for you, and I would just like a polite reminder that, you know, everyone in Canada is listening uh, once again, five years from now. All right, fine. You are our best fellow ever. (laughs) (laughs) If you could just read the script I have in front of you, it's pretty clear on what you're supposed to say. Here's Um, the wine I'm going to give you as a gift. (laughs) Five years from now, you know, you've had that day you just mentioned, wisdom teeth, post-ops, you're at home, tuck your kids into bed, sitting down, you're enjoying that glass of wine, your iPhone lights up, Wendell Mascarenas is calling. Are you hitting accept? Silence. Or are you screening that call? I'm afraid I love you, but I'd have to screen it. <laughs> and here's why. I'm not trying to be rude. Um, a key to a happy marriage, right? My wife stays at home with our kids. Okay. Uh, so most, when they're at school, she has no one to talk to. You know, she's doing her own thing. Kids come home from school. She's helping with school. So she wants to decompress just as much as you do. And so I would rather spend my quality time with her. No offense to you. I'll, I'll pick it up on the weekend, though. Yeah, okay. right? and, and honestly, yeah. that's a perfect answer and a perfect lesson for a marriage as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, it's so easy to get caught up in work uh, and the stresses of work, but you got to leave it at the office yeah. and, uh, and spend time with your spouse. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great end. And thanks again so much once again for coming on the podcast and offering your expertise. Hey, it was, it was fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. All right. That was awesome. Thanks again to John for taking time out of his busy schedule to yeah. talk to us. Really had a lot of fun with that interview. And I think we both learned a lot and hopefully our listeners learned a lot. He's very impressive. Next up, we have our journal cup. So let's jump into that. All right, Oscar, this month, from Jameis, we have an, okay, I'm gonna, I'll be honest, the article I chose and we talked about choosing for this episode is not really based on the quality of the article itself because I actually didn't find it to be a great article. It really was, sometimes what we try and do is use the article as a springboard to talk about our protocol or our training or what we do currently and just discuss the topic in general. And that's really what, this selection was about. So the one we went with was a meta-analysis and systematic review comparing the effectiveness of traditional and virtual surgical planning for orthognathic surgery based on randomized clinical trials. So this is an article by Chen et al. 
pre-screening. It's a combination of oral surgeons and orthodontists from China. Mm-hmm. So happy with the collaboration yep. Yep. and that oral surgery was involved. It's a systematic review and it's a meta-analysis. I mean, those are always like really big words. They sound good like to me. That. Sounds good. And then they say, you know, based on randomized clinical trials, it's like, whoa. Stepping There's up. Some high level, high level evidence stepping up. We like it. So pre-screen, you know, it passes the pre-screening quite well. The main purpose of the study was to systematically review the literature to determine whether VSP is currently superior to TSP. TSP, I guess, is traditional surgical planning, another, aka model another surgery. Another acronym I've never heard of. Another acronym I've never heard of. Although we always say, you know, VSP versus model surgery. So I guess TSP isn't unreasonable to me. It's not too bad. It's not too bad. I'm just never going to use it. Okay, (laughs) fair enough. So to compare VSP and TSP in terms of surgical accuracy for hard tissue and prediction precision for soft tissue. So right away, what annoys me about this whole premise is that a lot of times articles like this try and, you know, demonstrate that VSP or virtual planning has to have a superior accuracy or a, you know, significantly decreased surgical time. I mean, who are we kidding here? Even if VSP took the exact same amount of time and had the exact same amount of accuracy as model surgery, even if it was longer, but still had the same accuracy, do you really want to do all the lab work and all the model surgery? Like, are we really comparing apples and apples here? And honestly, this is why I'm going to be honest in the beginning. This is why this wasn't my favorite article. I think it was beating a dead horse in my opinion already. Like, I, And in my opinion, I think VSP has already won this argument. So that, yeah. that's my biggest issue with that. And like, and again, once we start delving into the actual article or jumping into the article, they'll be like, oh, the time is a little, actually a little bit more for VSP. But that's just in a very small portion of the procedure, of the process. They forgot to omit the whole time that you do in model surgery. And that's yeah, probably, I love that part. That's probably because none of these people are residents and they're all staff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, let, let's not bury the Let's jump into a bit. So their primary outcomes, number one, surgical accuracy for heart tissue. And they did it via all these, you know, fancy 3D yeah. methods that are like, whatever, who cares? And then the second outcome is prediction and precision for soft tissue. Once again, doing with all these three yeah. soft tissue landmarks, which I mean, are these really accurate? Highly debatable. We still don't have a proper soft tissue prediction or accuracy measurement, in my opinion. It's so subjective, but those were the primary outcomes. They had 906 possible articles. They narrowed this down to a total of eight studies, which were included. I found this hilarious because I was like, man, if you had to go through 906 articles just to find eight, eight studies. Like, yeah. Like, come on. It's pretty painful. Yeah. It's pretty painful. But that that's always that's the case. That's dedication, um, though. we got to give them credit for that. Oh, it's dedication. It's always the case in these uh, systematic reviews and meta-analysis. They always, you know, start off with, sometimes I wonder if they just start off with these broad criteria just to show it this massive number at the beginning. Yeah. But they eliminate them quite quickly. It's not like they're reading 906 articles from start to finish. As soon as they see something that doesn't meet the criteria, boom, it's gone. Yeah. So in the eight studies, they had a total of 199 orthopedic patients, among which 105 were model surgery and 94 were virtual VSP, virtual planning group. So pretty good numbers in each group, mm-hmm. not too bad. This is where I started to question the paper when I was reading it, the next part. They, rep- they reported that the VSP group required nine minutes for radiographic examination, 22 minutes for software planning, 
And the model surgery group required almost 20 minutes for radiographic examination and 15 minutes for software planning. There was no significant difference in the total time. So first of all, yeah. I was like, in the VSP group, what are you doing for nine minutes of radiographic examination? You're not doing anything. Yeah. The company's doing everything for you. Or like, are you holding the slowest CBCT button on the planet? it's like like, what is what is going on here and then for you know 22 minutes for software planning i would argue once you know what you're doing i mean these software planning means can be really quick but but an average of 22 minutes is not too bad that's not even that long like that's not bad at all yeah that's not bad at all and some cases are complicated they take longer some cases are really quick they take five minutes but i didn't mind that too much for the model surgery group 20 minutes of radiographic examination i don't know people that get the ceph trace the ceph Acetate sheets. Yeah. Oh. Second acetate sheets, cutting, moving things. Etch and sketch. Etch and, etch and <laughs> sketch. I mean, you're pretty fast, I think, if you're doing that in 20 minutes. Yeah. yeah. 15 minutes for software planning. Not sure what software they're planning during a it's, traditional it's TSP. Approach. So I don't know where that went either. Yeah. I was confused. Not sure not sure what that meant. They also talked about, you know, time spent on software design needs to be considered. You also need to consider model making, surgical splint manufacturing. And the operation, but I agree. So why didn't you consider yeah. that? Like that's a huge I mean, portion of it. Huge portion. What are these articles talking about? I mean, I would argue, I mean, let's be real. Tracing CEPHs is already ridiculous enough. But I think the number one part that most people hate is the model but, surgery. Like there's no question about that. That that's the longest, most cumbersome, and is just straight terrible. So I don't know. That's what I was saying. This is the part where I started to question the paper. And I was like, what's going on here? Now, the next thing they said is the average fee for the model surgery was significantly lower than that for virtual planning. Totally makes sense. Checks out. Checks all the boxes. However, the establishment of an osteotomy model accounted for nearly half of the total cost of the virtual technique. So they were getting a virtual, they were getting a, a model printed, like a stereolithographic model printed to then like bend plates to what are we doing here who does this yeah like like they jumped from point a to like z i don't know what they were doing there i don't know what they were doing and then they say that the cost of modelless vsp so if you did if you did virtual planning and didn't get a model like like the traditional way of vsp yeah yeah like how every person in the world so, I feel that, like is, so is that it. is that tvsp yeah <laughs> TVSP, yeah. So if you did TVSP, then the cost was similar. And I'm like, wait, what? There's no way the cost is similar. So I don't know. I started to question what this article was talking about. I know they're supposed to be based on these, you know, eight studies, but what? Yeah. I thought this lost a lot of credibility. Yep. Overall, their findings were that VSP and TSP were similar in surgical accuracy. So that's good, sure, for hard tissue in the sagittal plane. Although VSP technique was significantly more accurate in certain reference areas, especially in the anterior area of the maxilla. I mean, what's more important? What are we doing here? Is that the, the most important part of the surgery? It's like you set your central incisors and you don't really care about anything else half the time. So it's like, yeah. I don't, yeah. it's uh, just mind boggling. Yeah. They actually mentioned that both techniques had significantly better accuracy for the maxilla than the mandible. I actually found that kind of interesting. It made sense to me because as you just said, we set maxillary central incisors, what we care about the most, and what's and during the surgery is what we care about the most. And mandibly, you know, positioning, CRCO discrepancy, yeah. stuff like that. So it, that made sense to me that the maxilla is going to be the most accurate thing post-op compared to the mandible. 
The VSP technique required more time for software planning, like planning the case, I guess, but it showed an advantage in time savings overall compared to the entire process. I mean, okay, good, common sense, that makes sense. And then the conclusion, the VSP technique has become a good alternative to the TSP technique for orthognathic surgery, especially regarding frontal aesthetic considerations. So good to have aesthetics from the frontal view, I guess. All cases. But studies reporting indicators with good representativeness and sensitivity using an identical comparative method are recommended. No, there's no recommendation. Stop saying we need more studies for this. Yeah. So the point of us bringing this article, because we both pretty much hated this article. I mean, not to be offensive to the authors or anything, but no, and they, I mean, they, they're really they just doing work. a meta-analysis. Exactly. So yeah. to be fair, it's really the, the, the underlying studies we don't like. But the reason we picked this is just to discuss this whole debate one time. And then we never have to discuss this again, because I think we both agree that for single jaw cases, totally fine with people using either a virtual planning method or a traditional method, yeah. meaning making a splint by hand on stone models, totally fine with either because making a splint by hand on stone models, even though I don't want to do it, it's really quick. It's really simple. That one, it's not a big that deal. one's a, honestly, it's a, it's a no brainer too, in the sense that if someone says, "Oh, I only do model surgery for double jaw, anything above double jaw," I'd be like, "Yeah, that makes sense," because it is anything below a double. Yeah, jaw, sorry, anything right? below a double jaw, because that makes yeah. sense completely. Because you can make a splint on a single jaw patient in two seconds. That and also they're probably really facet. They've been doing it for, for a while. Sure. And cost containment, it's way, 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 way cheaper. No question. So totally sold. Yeah. For a single jaw, if you want to do virtual planning or you want to do model surgery, traditional surgery. Now, the people I know that do single jaws uh, virtually, what they will say is it's easier. They don't even want to deal with stone models or making it a splint by hand. They don't even want to have a lab or the materials. They have an intraoral scanner, so they don't need to take impressions anymore. And they like the other aspects of the plan you can get, like, you know, nerve measurements yeah. and osteotomy, stuff like that. So they don't mind the increased cost for that little bit additional data as well as the workflow. It's premium. Totally fine. It's a premium. Yeah. So totally fine, but we're not going to bash anyone that does single jaws via splints and stone models because it's a totally reasonable alternative. But when it comes to double jaw surgery, we need to be kind of harsh in our appraisal here that if you are not doing virtual planning, you are you're in the stone age. Like literally, you're in the stone age. Yeah. You're, you're, you're being left behind. And that's, not because, to, and that's not to say, sorry to cut you off, it's not to say that they're not doing good surgery. It's just that when things evolve, why not evolve with them? Yeah, but I would argue, you know, I used to think that too, but now that I've seen so many complex cases, I think for your run-of-the-mill surgery, sure, you're going to get close enough. But if you're trying to tell me you, you can treat a facial asymmetry patient. As well? Or... No. Yeah, or, you know, a cleft patient or a, a hemifacial microsomia patient, there is no, no way. No, and that's why this, argue, this article actually left those patients out, if you saw that too. Like if, yeah, yeah. I, did, I did see that. So, it left all the complex patients yeah, out. Yeah, and so, like, yeah, if we're talking run-of-the-mill, straightforward cases, I'm, like, 100% sure people doing TSP are going to get as good an option as a VSP. But if you have any complexity, like you said, hemifacial, anything like that, a cleft patient, there's no way that you can say you're, you're going to have the same accuracy. It's impossible. Yeah. Now, even if they are then going to say, okay, but for, you know, your run-of-the-mill cases, those are rare. Run-of-the-mill cases, you get just as good results. You know, I actually asked Brian Farrell about this because I, it just baffles my mind that this is still a topic. And when you go to conferences, there are still people talking about the advantages of virtual playing, trying to convince people. Yep. It blows my mind that people are still behind us. And we know of residency programs we know of certain staff we know some people yeah. still doing model surgery 
And the first thing you mentioned is it's not the staff doing the work, it's the resident. And that's just an abuse of labor, in my opinion, because sure, you're not doing the work, but there is no educational benefit from doing model surgery. I want to like nip that in the bud because there is a huge educational benefit from planning a case and figuring out the movements yes. you want to do yep. and taking all the aesthetic considerations, learning about roll, pitch, yaw, yep. interferences for sure. But you learn all of that by learning how to virtually plan. When you virtually plan, it's not like you turn it on and you know everything and, and you're efficient done. and good. It's not that way. You have to work through the case. You have to know what you're doing. You still have to, you know, plan the case properly to get a good result to make surgery more efficient. But there is no benefit from taking a face bow and mounting models and drawing lines and cutting and moving. It is just an abuse of labor and, and where a we, waste of resources and a waste of time. And where we are today, like if you would have said, let's say five years ago, six years ago, seven years, when it wasn't as easily accessible to all programs or to all to everyone. I would say, okay, you know what? You should still teach traditional model surgery because if, if you go out there, you, can, you don't have access to it. It is so mainstream now that it's impossible not to have access to VSP. It really is impossible. Exactly. So, so learning the other techniques, what's it for? Like, what are you, what are you doing and that's, for? And that's one thing Farrell said. He said, if you've been doing traditional surgery for a long time and you've done, you know, a thousand cases, he's like, you are going to be really good at traditional surgery. He's like, you're probably really good and you can get good results yep. and you can do it fast. You're taking a junior resident or a senior resident that has done maybe they're starting out. So this is their, you know, case number one to 20, one to 30, whatever it is. They're not going to be as good as you at traditional modules. It's not going to make surgery. a dent in their career. And then once they graduate, they're never going to do it again. No. They're, they're never going to do model surgery again. No one graduating from these programs are going to do model surgery again or trace CEFs when they graduate. I mean, we know these programs, we know the graduates, and none of them still do it. Now, one thing uh, we should mention that he mentioned as well is that he constantly tries to educate people and say, just try virtual planning once. Because you can have all these preconceived notions, but if you just try it once, it might change your mind. Yeah. So if you're still doing model surgery and you haven't even tried virtual surgery, just try it once. And if you don't like it, if you prefer your own way, you can always go back. That's fine. Yeah, it's your life. You can do whatever you want. But I just think it's not right to make residents, you know, sit there after hours every day in the lab, pouring stone models and trimming them and mounting them. It just it makes me cringe even thinking about how we used to have to do these things unless it's a single jaw case in which as i said totally for that no problem at all yeah and like exactly that's a different but you really think that when the residents up 10 11 12 at night moving those models you think that's going to be more accurate than a 30 minute vsp session at five in the afternoon no no chance come on there you on the monster you, know, you made the cut and you're like okay you have no concept of yaw yeah. you, you're just guessing yeah, yeah. you can control ap movement and um, vertical position of your incisor, which is most important, but you have no, no. no concept of yaw. No. You have no idea what your proximal interferences in the mandible are going to be. You have no way of reducing things in advance. I mean, there are so many things you can learn from virtual planning. And what bugs me also is, as we mentioned, there's a lot to learn from virtual planning. I've learned so much this year alone from just how to properly, efficiently, virtually plan and what information you can get from that. So it's not like a, it's not a, it's not a thing that it's not like something that we can't benefit from the knowledge of our staff. 
I mean, I'm sure at U of T, when you were doing it with your staff, they were probably teaching you tricks during the virtual plan or teaching you how to do it efficiently yep. or what you're looking for, what you're determining. Like these are like, that's not lost. Exactly. Like the teaching aspect isn't lost because you're doing it virtually. And that's what bugs me because if you, if there was an educational benefit, I would say, you know what, listen, you're in residency, you got to put in the work, you're going to learn something from it. And even though you'll never do this again, you will be a better surgeon for yep. it. But the issue is you will not be a better surgeon for doing model surgery as a resident. No. Now, another topic that a lot of people bring up is, you know, because you're virtually setting the occlusion, you don't have that tactile feel of the models. So how can you tell if you're setting the occlusion properly? How can you tell if you have a transverse discrepancy? And at first, I remember when I was resident, I really liked having stone models. So and do I still, I. You know, yeah. it's nice. You can put them together and you can feel. And, you know, if you if you really want that, listen, you can 3D print your intraoral scans or take stone models and still do that, but still plan the case it, virtually and see if what you're seeing on the screen matches what you feel in your hands. It's so funny. So one of our, first of all, like the tactile feel is like people who just like reading a textbook from a textbook and not from online, right? And I'm one of those people, I like to flip the page. Me too. I just Me do. Too. But one of our surgeons, super talented at our practice, who does a lot of orthognathic, especially for Ontario, right? Like he does a lot of cases. He still likes, he does all his cases VSB, but he likes to 3D print his models. He just likes yep. to feel the occlusion in his hands. And so there's nothing wrong with that. It takes him no time. He gets it sent. And when he's doing the case, he has it planned there as well. Yeah. yeah. And if it gives you confidence and, and, and I would say there's a great educational benefit to that. You can ask the resident to set an occlusion yep. and show you what they would do. Yep. You can ask them to, to see how they would manage a transverse discrepancy. You can ask them how to manage Bolton discrepancies, uh, canines. You know, there's a lot of educational value. Now, my counterpoint to that is going to be you can actually learn all those things online in the virtual meeting by looking at the occlusion and learning how to guide an engineer into setting a proper occlusion and all the different things you want to do. But I totally understand people that want a tactile feel. I think that's a good thing. And I do think, I, and again, I see the benefit in that even more because when you are learning, it's almost nice to have one solid thing in your hand. Because if not, you are just going to have perceptions of everything. You're trying to say, how would I plan this case? And you're also trying to think in your head, oh, how does this actually fit? If you have something concrete in your hands, you're now just thinking of how I'm going to plan it. So for, for learning purposes, I don't see any negative of having models in your hand. Yeah. And I think the reason we're so passionate about this topic and we don't want to come across as being very abrasive. It's more, we've seen both sides. We were fortunate that both of us, when we became senior residents, you know, our programs had tradition or had uh, transformed into virtual planning pretty much exclusively. Yep. Uh, whereas for single jobs, we were still doing some model surgery just to, to make a splint by hand. But it's just something that we don't, we wanted to talk about it once. We wanted to say what all the residents are thinking both in Canada and the US where they're dying for virtual surgery and how to learn to do it efficiently. And the, hopefully this this kind of will put an end to this debate and it's something that we don't need to really discuss in detail going forward. Yeah, and again, like you said, we don't mean, or we're not trying to sound condescending in any way or be like, this is the way it has to be done. We're just talking about from a resident perspective, does it provide any educational benefit? And in our opinion, no, it doesn't. Yeah, all the education you get from it, you can learn from virtual planning as well. So that ends our journal club. Once again, sometimes we'll pick articles just to be a springboard for a topic that we wanted to talk about, maybe talk about our training or talk about our opinions on that. It is just our opinions. I mean, you, you, a lot of people are, might agree, they might disagree, and that's great. That's the whole point of this. We want to have a discussion and we, we want to hear different people's opinions. But that's it for our journal club. Let's jump into recommendations. All right, Oscar. So last episode, I told you that, you know, the theme of my recommendations, I thought for the foreseeable future 
was going to be me catching up on things that everyone talks about or, or you know, classic shows, classic movies, and me wanting to catch up on these things and experience them for myself. So the next thing that I worked on for you know many months, actually going back over the past year, I would say, but I finally finished, was a TV show mm-hmm. that everyone recommended to me and they talk about all the time, which is Seinfeld. Okay, yep. So this is a classic show from the 90s that everyone would reference all the time. Now, a lot of the competing people will talk about Seinfeld, they'll talk about Friends, and I have seen all of Friends, every episode on Netflix from the beginning to the end, maybe even twice actually at this point. And I really enjoy Friends, I really find it funny. I think it's such an easy watch in the background. You don't have to pay attention and you can laugh. You don't have to pay attention, you can laugh. Like It's it's such a great show and it's the type of show, if, if a random episode is on, you can still watch it and enjoy it. So I think Friends is great. I've also seen all of The Office, I think it's great. Uh, at least the beginning parts, the beginning seasons. But I wanted to get into Seinfeld. And it's weird because I started watching Seinfeld and my overwhelming emotion for the first few seasons was, this is what everyone's been talking mm-hmm. about? Like, this like, is it? And like, what's the point of it? What's the point of this? And I didn't find it funny. I didn't really look forward to the next episode. I don't know. I was really disappointed. And it's funny. I, I told people, and a lot of people told me it did start off a little bit slow, yeah. but it gets better and you get to know the characters. So there's nine seasons total. And, you know, once you get to season three or four, you start realizing, man, I kind of like, I know the characters it now. It grows on you. It grows on you. You like, okay, you know, you get George more, like, oh, that's such a George thing. Or I get what the, what Elaine's going for here or Kramer. When when you first meet Kramer, you're like, this guy's just weird and annoying. Yeah. But then you're like, man, this guy's kind of funny and cool. And, and, and he's such a character. I did find near the end, once again, I started regressing to that feeling of, man, this is kind of getting drawn out. I'm not really enjoying this as much. It's not really that funny. But the weirdest thing happened, which is as soon as I would finish the end of season nine, I missed the show. I was like, it was so weird that, you know, over the next few weeks, I was like, You're like, what's the next I'm episode? I'm sad that I have yeah. no, yeah, I'm sad I have no episodes left of this show anymore. Like, I felt really sad. And, I, and it's funny because I was talking with a couple of my friends that are like Seinfeld fanatics. And, and during the time I was watching, I was kind of trashed. I was like, yo, this show's not even that good. I don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> And then when I finished it, I was like, listen, I'm coming around. It, like, I'm tearing, it, it up, I'm tearing up here. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I, I do kind of miss it. So so I take it you've seen Seinfeld as well? I have. And again, I'm not a hard like fanatic by any means in terms of the show. And I liked it. And again, I also thought of it more along the friend line where you can keep it in the background. You see funny things are going on. I thought George was hilarious. Like, George is the yeah, best. Like, and his parents, I, I thought his parents were also hilarious. I didn't be like, this is a show I'm attached to. But when it wasn't on the air anymore... I was like, oh, yeah, like, like, when is the next episode coming out? So it is funny. Yeah. I did get that attachment to it also, even though I wasn't a fanatic at all. Okay. So it's funny. I, I did a total 180 because once I finished it, I was, like, missing it. I was like, man, this is great. And so my the second part of my recommendation uh, for people that haven't seen Seinfeld is, you know, Jerry Seinfeld came out with a book very recently called Is This Anything? I don't know if you've heard of this book. No. But basically, he's kept notes on his career in comedy and all the jokes he thinks of. And he writes it down on a notepad and he's kept that, that the, all those notes, like the original notes for 45 years. Wow! So he has 45 years of material that some of it he never used. And some of it was never used in Seinfeld, never used in the standup. So it's this book of all his unused material. But what's nice in this day and age is you can get audio books. So the audio book version is like six hours. So you can listen to it, obviously, over mm-hmm. the you know long drive or over time. I'm still not even done the audiobook. I think I'm halfway through. But he narrates the audiobook, obviously. But he doesn't narrate it just by talking. He narrates it by telling the jokes as if he was doing a stand-up it's like routine. like a six-hour stand-up. That's perfect. It's a six-hour stand-up. And 
it's all just little tiny jokes. So it'll be like a topic, like the weather. And then he'll go on like a, sometimes it's like a 10 second joke. Sometimes it's a two minute joke. It's it's literally his notebook of all these little ideas. And it's so typical Seinfeld. It's so typical for the show. It's really I'm gonna check fun. That out. A lot of, yeah, I'm gonna check it's that like out. a lot of laugh out loud moments. It's perfect. So for people that like Seinfeld and that type of humor, it's a huge solid recommend for me for the audiobook. I mean, I guess you could read the book too, but the audiobook's the best because he's just speaking. So it's, it's just stand up. Yeah, like you're paying for a comedy show. It's like you're paying for a comedy show. That's exactly. awesome. And it's six no, hours it's, long. I'm actually going to look into that. Yeah, so that's Is This Anything? It's by Jerry Seinfeld. It's both in a book and audiobook form. So I highly, highly recommend that for people that like Seinfeld or kind of miss Seinfeld. How about you, Oscar? So I've had a bit of a slow month in terms of anything that I that I was watching or, or into because again, I was busy with kind of the home stuff. So I really didn't spend time really watching anything or investing my time into, into getting into a show. I do have a very important recommendation though, for anyone moving forward is own two TVs in your house or your condo. And the, <laughs> okay. and the reason I'm, I'm saying that is because, because I didn't invest into looking up a show and I'm usually the person that picks a show in our house with me and Lexi, you know, we're like, we'll watch something. I didn't really have the time to do that. When I would come home, she would already be watching TV. And so then I, it's not that I got stuck watching, but it's like, okay, we're hanging out. So I'm just going to watch. And I got stuck. I will say stuck. I got stuck watching Bridgerton. Okay. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. And that's what I mean. If I can give anybody a recommendation, it's to get two TVs so that you can go <laughs> to the other room when you don't want to watch the show. So for those that haven't watched, I heard it's like Gossip Girl, the show, but in England. I don't even know what Gossip Girl is. But it's, okay. but that's what it sounds like it would be. And it is. It's like set in the old times in England. And like, it's just a lot of ridiculousness. But I'm the kind of person that if I'm watching a show and I'm getting frustrated, I'll comment. So not only was I getting annoyed, Lexi was, Lexi was getting annoyed that I was beside her watching. And she's like, can you just stop <laughs> talking? <laughs> yeah. So that's my so recommendation. I'm, Get two TVs in your house. So it's funny. You know, I'm in a one bedroom condo, obviously, right now. And when my wife was here, we, we, I also only have one television yep. and she also watched all of Bridgerton, <laughs> all of like Emily in Paris, all these shows that I would never watch. Yep. But luckily we kind of have not like a rule or anything, but it's just kind of understood that when she's alone with the baby or alone by herself, she can watch whatever show she wants. Uh, as long as I don't want to watch the show too. Yep. When I'm alone, I'll watch my sports. I'll watch my shows that I know she doesn't want to watch. Yep. But then when we're together, we'll kind of watch our mutual shows and we have to like agree on a mutual show to watch. So even though she watched all of Bridgerton, Emily in Paris, you know, all these different shows that I've never seen. You didn't have to go I, through I, them. I didn't have to watch a single minute of oh, any of them. You locked out. You locked out. <laughs> so, so purchase two televisions. I mean, when we eventually move back to Toronto and get either a bigger condo or a house eventually like you, 100% need to have like a little kind of man cave. That'll or, be my or, gift or to you, a TV. A TV? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to hold you. I'm going to hold you to that. Yeah. A little housewarming present. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're gonna give me like a 22 inch. Uh... I didn't say the size. I just said it's gonna be yeah. a TV. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's a great recommendation. So, um, if you guys have any recommendations, either for topics for the podcast or TV shows you've been watching or feedback you want to give us on this episode, definitely reach out to us. It's teeth and titanium omfs at gmail.com. We always love hearing from our listeners and love discussing your points on the show. So, if you want to be featured or you have a recommendation for us, definitely reach out. That's it for this episode. Thanks you so much to our loyal listeners and we will see you back next month for a brand new episode. Take care guys.